Out of the Middle Ages, we got some illuminated manuscripts where people would draw actually very wonderful art at the beginnings of chapters of the scriptures in similar places. And we have a prayer of illumination, asking God to do that in our hearts as we read his scripture. Lord, this passage is confusing to me. In your distress, you prophesied against Jerusalem and the temple. And then your disciples asked three questions, assuming they had one answer. And now I don't know which part of your answer belonged to which parts of their questions. But you have told us what we need to know. So I ask you, through Matt's preaching, to help us understand what we should take away today from this passage. Our passage is <clears throat> Matthew 23, 37 through 24, 14. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away 
and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. I saw that Mike was reading. I was walking down the hall. I sped up, forgetting at what pace he reads. Thank you. When will these things be? The disciples asked after they heard Jesus lament. And one of the challenging things, especially about when Jesus talks about uh, the end times, and by that he means predominantly the time between his earthly ministry and his return. That's what he means by that. The challenge to hearing Jesus' words is he's talking about the past. He's talking about the prophets of Israel, and he's talking about the present, them rejecting the message of John the Baptist, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and the message of Jesus, that's the present. And then he's talking about the destruction of the temple, that's going to happen in about 33, 37 years from when he's speaking, and he's talking about his return. So he's asking us to understand four different periods of time all at the same time, which is part of the reason that if you've read the book of Acts, the disciples say, we need a lot of time to study because we remember what he said, but we need to understand it better. And so they were going back to what we now call the Old Testament to more fully understand, especially things like this discourse. This is the fifth major speech section in the book of Matthew, um, often called the Olivet Discourse because he's sitting on the Mount of Olives when he gives it. And when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, that's a command. Less clear in the English than in the Greek, but you're, you're asking or uh, commanding that the kingdom come, that, that heaven and earth collide, and that Jesus' full reign take over and push back the curse. And in the meantime, when you pray that, the Holy Spirit is strengthening you to stay awake, which is the consistent biblical command whenever end times are talked about, be it Paul, specifically in First and Second Thessalonians, be it Peter, who is very interested in this, be it Revelation, be it Jesus, here. That's the command. And it doesn't mean don't sleep. It means don't wait to act like a follower of Jesus in every place that God calls you to be. I went back and forth on this part of the outline. Jesus lamented the future because he's talking about the past and he's talking about the present and he's talking about the near future and he's talking about the distant future kind of all at the same time. But first he starts with the past. And hearing him being publicly sad about Jerusalem, and I think he means Jerusalem as representative of the nation of Israel for rejecting many of the prophets, it's challenging because he doesn't nuance it. You know, there were prophets that uh, Israel listened to. 
There were kings that led them in repentance, and the nation was given peace for a time, but many rejected. In the past, what would happen is the people would stop worshiping God. They'd start worshiping a Canaanite deity, and they would fall into uh, that, which is terrible, which always led to oppression of the poor and sexual immorality. What's happening in the present time that Jesus gives this is the people had actually crafted all sorts of rules and regulations that weren't honoring God, and they were actually distracting them from neighbor love, which means that through a different kind of idolatry, people were being oppressed. But first, we have to notice that Jesus is publicly sad, just for a minute. I know I talk about this kind of often for a pastor, but Jesus is fully human, in addition to being fully divine. And so the fact that he was so regularly willing to express public sadness is a key for us to a full humanity ourselves, which is to be sad about sad things. To be fully human means not to wallow, not to get stuck in it forever, but to experience sad things so that they don't leak out of our elbows, to quote one of the wiser humans I know. The longer I'm in ministry, the more I see the importance of being sad with God and in conversation with others about the things that are worth being sad about. That actually frees us into the present and into planning for the future. I love the disciples' first question. When? There are a lot of reasons that that's their first question. It's a lot of reasons that it's one of our first questions. People who have attempted to answer this question, despite what Jesus says here, have sold millions and millions and millions of books. Jesus doesn't ignore the question, but he reframes the question and the other two questions, which I think are better questions, within the context of a large discussion of what's about to happen in the short term for Israel and what's going to happen to Christians between Matthew 24 and Jesus' second coming. Jesus lamented, and then he spoke about the temple, and um, in just about three decades, it'll be the end of what the disciples grew up with. You know, the nation of Israel had a, had a pretty rough go over those thousands of years. There was a time that it was a theocracy when it came out of the Exodus, and there were moments of the theocracy that were good, and they rejected the theocracy, and there were some bad moments too. Read the book of Judges. There was a monarchy. There were times that the monarchy was a blessing to the nation of Israel because the kings worshiped God and God alone, and there were times that it did not go well. We'll actually get into that a little bit this summer, looking into some of the Old Testament books. And then one of the most horrific things that I've ever read extensively about happened. In 587, the nation of Judah was exiled. And one of the reasons we can't relate to that is their faith was connected to the land. And so not only was it heinous and absolutely brutal as wars go, but it also removed them from their homeland. And then they're in, at this point in Israel's history, they're an occupied state. And as an occupied state, they descended into a different kind of religious idolatry that first John the Baptist and then Jesus were like, you need to repent 
for adding rules, for trying to be more spiritual than the scriptures would talk about. And what Jesus is telling him is the temple is going to be thrown down. And he does so with an allusion to Daniel. He says it this way in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Corey and I were talking about this this week, and he said that's an invitation to pause and think about what he's saying. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is a reminder that prophecy in the scripture is motivational speech that often utilizes the future to enhance the message that we are to repent and turn back to God. It's also a reminder of the character of God because even though it doesn't seem good to us oftentimes that he is waiting to execute his judgment over the land, the reason he waits is because he's patient and more are being drawn into his family. The destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD was very, very, very terrible, which is why Jesus says it'll be better if it's not on a Sabbath. It'll be harder for anyone that's pregnant because it was swift and violent and horrific. Jesus lamented and he spoke about the temple and then he speaks about his return. And as almost as soon as the early church became a thing, 40s and 50s AD, these things that Jesus describes, wars and rumors of wars, false teachings, began happening. And they are going to happen pretty repetitively until he returns. In the nine o'clock service where people are, are welcome to pray out loud in a, in a space designed for that, we prayed over four or five different conflicts around the world, both conflicts that are beginning and conflicts that have been happening for a while because the end times are upon us. And by time, I mean the age between Jesus' earthly ministry and his return. And the false teaching, it happens and it keeps me up at night. And it's been happening. If you've ever read about the church councils, it can sound boring to you to read about Donatism unless you read into it a little bit and realize it looks a lot like a lot of the religions today that are sort of Christian-ish, except it's Jesus plus something else. The one that scares me the most, we've talked about it a lot, is if you trust Jesus, you will have better financial security and health forever. That is literally a teaching that guides people away from the true Jesus who gives peace and joy and we will suffer in this life. And it draws a lot of humans who then go through life either misunderstanding the true gospel or turn away from Jesus because of that. And there are a lot of other versions. We could make a long, long, long list of teachings that look sort of Christian-ish. The other most dangerous ones sound a lot like the Christian gospel. Receive salvation and you must do this. And that is not the Christian gospel. Christian gospel is Jesus did this. We receive that by faith. And then, of course, lives are inevitably changed. But there's not a requirement. I love that when Jesus is talking about this, and I did not, note, I did not realize this before. If you had asked me last year to talk about the Olivet Discourse, either from Mark 13 or here in Matthew, 
I wouldn't have realized that Jesus is aware that we're going to get really tired of waiting for him to return. We're going to be tired of our joint pain and cancer and war and death and disillusion of relationship through sin. That's why in the first story that he tells to supplement these teachings about the ten women that are wanting to go to the bridal party, the, bride doesn't, the bridegroom doesn't come until midnight because Jesus knows that we, his followers, are going to be really tired of waiting for him to return, which is why he uses this amplified language, which I'll get to in a second, to help us hang in there. Later in chapter 24, Jesus says, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. And you know, end time stuff's pretty fun. Some of you have studied the Bible a lot, and you enjoy studying this because you need to use lots of different books, and it's very exciting to try and visualize it. Some of the theories are more cinematic than others of them, which is actually, I think, part of the reason they sell better, literally and figuratively. But you know, to, to actually have a full end times perspective, you have to start with your approach. Did you know that? And I'm not going to talk about this for very long, but some of you will appreciate this. You start with either an idealist, historicist, preterist, or futurist perspective on the end times. Then you have to decide what to do with the millennium. Pre, post, ah. And the reason I put all that in front of you is because sometimes we'll get to a verse like this. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And we want to understand that. So we start researching Isaiah and Zechariah and Ezekiel, which really help us understand Revelation. We take First and Second Thessalonians and Peter, and we put them alongside Jesus' words to try and understand this. Some people would say that the one left behind, oh man, that was a slip. <sighs> Get it together. Some would say that the one who is taken goes to the good place, and some would say the one who's left is taken to the good place. Did you know that? Depends on if you take the idealist or the futurist approach. Probably not the preterist. I think that's the worst one. But what does Jesus say right after this? The very next verse. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming contextually to overfocus on where are they going is to miss the point of the Jesus is getting at it is worth studying it is not the point though the point is it's going to happen fast so don't wait to act like a follower of Jesus with your words and with your stuff the things we talk about all the time but whenever the end times teachings comes up Jesus's emphasis on acting like a Christian immediately because it's sudden 
and surprising when it will happen. And to help us understand this better, he tells a series of stories about these 10 women who are supposed to be prepared to follow the bridegroom to the party, which means they can recognize his voice. You recognize his voice? Some of the most troubling conversations I've had with Christians are when they tell me something that they believe they heard from the Lord that sounds condemning. Not convicting, condemning. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Jesus is the convictor, but not the condemner. You must be familiar with the scriptures so that when something like conviction comes, you're able to understand if it's the voice of the Lord or the voice of your own flesh or the evil one or the world. And conviction is a sweet and important part of the Christian life and condemnation is of the enemy. And one of the ways that he tricks followers of Jesus most quickly is by convincing them that this is part of their sanctification instead of what it actually is, which is shaming. The ten women needed to be able to recognize his voice, but five of them take action. They trimmed the wicks. They, were, they had oil with them so that they could wait until midnight. Their, their activity aligned with their belief. The belief is that they want to go to the party, and there is a party, and there is a bridegroom, and their activity matched it. This is Jesus once again saying, as he says in very profound language in Matthew, your belief will follow, or sorry, your behavior will follow your belief. The good news is that we are invited to a wedding feast. And the encouragement of Jesus is to be wise and prepared. And then Jesus tells another story, and he says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. The one with five grows it into five more. The one with two grows it into two more. And the one with one buries it. I think I was given two. If the options are five and two and one, I think I was given two. And I'm kind of glad. Because 15 years ago, you're not. You're like, I'd kind of love a five-talent preacher. Well, you got me. <laughs> but the people that I saw that I would have told you were given five, they just have some issues that I'm really glad I don't have to deal with. But the point of this is do not be idle with the gifts and skills and time and money that the Lord has given you. It is for his kingdom. It is received by you for his kingdom. And this is where perhaps someone with five talents would just motivate all of you to Yes, I will do all the things for the church. And then some of you would resent it because you would serve too much, which would be an incredible loss. But your gifts are needed here for the kingdom to reach new people for Jesus and to help us grow up and to help us maintain what we're supposed to be doing in this area. Your skills are needed. Your knowledge 
is needed. Sometimes it's going to be fun, and sometimes it's not. I think the people that participate on our worship team probably enjoy that more than sometimes people enjoy working in the nursery. Sometimes. Some of you love working in the nursery, but we need to be able to take care of the kids that are here. And we need to lead people in singing. We need people that can do the things with the words up here, even though words are hard. We need people to do things in ways that will not be visible to very many around the property. But in Jesus' end times discourse, he reminds us to not waste our gifts and skills. They are his and for use in his kingdom. Don't wear yourself out. Your limits are part of your calling. But we do need you. And then Jesus tells a story about his return. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then he describes that the sheep go to the marginalized because they knew that they were marginalized until Christ came and redeemed them. And inevitably, their behavior matched their belief that they desperately needed Jesus to save them, and he did. So they acted like joyful followers of Christ with all of the humans that they interacted with. Are we living in the end times as in the time between Jesus' incarnation and return? Yes. When the first Christians heard this, did they understand? Yes, in part, though they were troubled, as many of us are, and have the same question. When? Jesus says, well, when is an okay question, but it's not the best question. What do we do? Stay awake. We do not wait to act like followers of Christ. Martin Luther was asked what he would do if he knew Jesus was going to return the next day. And he said, go plant a tree. Which sounds like an odd answer, but it's a very, very biblical answer. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we would like for you to return. We do not even need to finish this next song. But if you are going to continue to delay your return, strengthen us to believe and to believe more deeply in your gospel and in its call on our lives. Lord, I ask that the men and women that are considering your gospel, that you would give them good conversation partners and good prayer and a clear understanding of what you offer freely through your Son. And for those who call you Lord, grow us up and mature us, Lord. We trust you. We ask that you strengthen us to trust you. Amen.